hopefully inside your service sheets is an outline that looks a bit like this as we continue this series exploring some of the key ethical issues of our age and really today of any age as we look at the Christian and sexuality. And on the inside of that you'll see an outline of where we're heading and on the back are just some references for further reflection. I'll mention some of those but if you're wanting to explore these things further than the time we have permits then there's some great books to grab hold of many of which are over in the church centre or at least you can order them there so please do that if you'd like to. Now the 1960s was an era ripe for revolution. He was a generation who'd never known a world war who'd known very little of economic hardship. Here were the young and free baby boomers, a revolutionary generation, a generation uh, that brought about revolution on many fronts, uh, one of which significantly was the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution of the 1960s uh, was in many ways a product of many factors going back over the preceding decades. But what made it possible for the revolution to occur at that moment was the giant leap forward in contraceptive technology. For the very first time, the contraceptive pill was readily and cheaply available. And so for the first time, the link between sexual activity and the obvious result of childbearing was broken. And so kicked free from this purpose, kicked free from this result, we soon kicked it free as well from the context where children were raised, the context of marriage. Sex was now free from all the baggage of children and marriage, leaving sex with just one function left, the pursuit of pleasure. The pill made sex safe, or at least safe from the obvious consequences that we may have feared in the past, the consequences of children. And so free from that apparent risk, I was now totally free to pursue sex for my pleasure whenever and wherever I wanted. Viva the revolution. What a victory. Think of what we've won. Think of uh, the casual, unencumbered sex that is now at our disposal. Sex as as a commodity, as a thing. I don't need to get married to have it. I don't even need a relationship. Sex is something that exists for my pleasure. Sex is something that I have. Like I have dinner or I have a car, I have sex. And we won that revolution and so we won that prize, our victory prize. But as I explored this topic this week, the more you look into it, the more that victory prize looks a little like a Trojan horse. Uh, in the, the great battle between the Greeks and the city of Troy, uh, the, the battle had been going on for so, some time and the Greeks were looking for a way to end the battle, to win it. And so they constructed a giant horse, uh, big enough for some 30 select troops to, uh, to fit inside. They, they hid the troops in there and then they gave the impression that they were retreating. They sailed off. And so the Trojans, thinking that they had won the battle, that they had won this victory, brought the horse in as their victory trophy. And as soon as they did, the horse opened along with the men inside it and the city was taken. That's the sort of victory that we have won in the sexual revolution. The results of the sexual revolution, uh, to me, is, it's a bit like uh, we've gone upstairs in our home and we've, turned on, we've run a bath, we've turned on the tap and then we've walked away leaving it. And over time the bath has filled and the water has filled the bathroom and then now is running down the stairs filling up the whole house. Sexuality, an aspect of our human life, just one aspect of our human life, has so filled our culture and our society that everything is soaked in sex. 
Exhibit A, uh, the pornographic industry. The rise and rise and rise of pornography. Some 25% of all searches on the internet are for pornographic sites. 35% of images or videos or documents downloaded are pornographic ones. And the revenue of online pornography is greater than the combined revenues of all the top tech companies put together. eBay, Yahoo, Apple, uh, Google, you name it. You combine all their revenues and they are not a shade on the pornographic revenue. We are soaked in sex. And if you want to see the true horror of what happens when we win this prize, we win this revolution, realise that this sex-soaked culture is what our children live and breathe. It's not confined to the adult world. Uh, Everywhere our children turn, sex is on the agenda. Shopping centres, primary schools, the media, computers, you name it. Take, for example, uh, the the computer gaming industry. The most popular game of all time is a game called Grand Theft Auto, a game that broke sales records on on its first day of sales, sold 3.5 million, sold 120 million thus far. In the latest edition, now players get bonus points for sexually assaulting a prostitute and then killing her. Or then you have uh, websites like uh, the one called eSpin the Bottle, described uh, as a site for sexy flirting and dating for those aged between 13 and 57. A site that has banner ads scrolled across the top, helping children to learn how to hide their internet use from their parents. And then there is the music video world that so soaks youth culture. And the likes of Miley Cyrus, uh, better known as Hannah Montana, a hero to a generation of young girls. And now 16 years of age, she's broken out into mainstream music and her latest video, uh, now no doubt uh, eagerly awaited by millions of young girls, features her virtually naked and writhing on a bed uh, talking about her experience the previous night in a nightclub. Viva the revolution. There's our prize, our culture soaked with sex, that even our children are soaked in it. It's like the tap that we refuse to turn off, but the consequences grow ever more widespread and deeper. Now listen to this from uh, parenting and family expert Steve Biddle. He says, something new is starting to happen in our culture. Reported uh, by parents and counsellors, doctors and psychiatrists, The cluster of symptoms that uh, normally result from sexual abuse, self-loathing, depression, addiction, anxiety and the difficulty of being close to others are now appearing in millions of girls and boys who have not been sexually abused. Girls and boys whose lives are safe and ordinary and normal but soaked in a sex-obsessed culture. Viva the revolution. What a prize. Uh, the idolising of sex, uh, making it our God and yet at the same time vacating it of any meaning, leaving a horrific trail through the lives of our children and also our adult lives. We are utterly confused about sex. Sure it is good, sure that it's meant for our pleasure, but no idea how to get there. And so what does God expect of us in all of this? How is a Christian meant to navigate through the brokenness of sexuality in our culture? What does he have to say on a topic like this so that we would understand the nature and purpose of sex so that we may honour him with it? Well, let me say from the very first pages of the Bible, sex is on the agenda. God is a fan of sex. The very first sexual thought in this world was God's. In fact, the first command he gives the man and the woman is to have sex. 
But not only is the Bible positive about sex, not only is the Bible pro-sex, it, it knows how powerful it is. So we must be careful, it says, like one would around dynamite. And Song of Songs, a book that celebrates physical intimacy, that rejoices in this gift that God has given us in our sexuality, says in all the euphoria there's a word of caution. It says, do not arouse love before it's time. Because once that's awakened, it's such a powerful force, it is as strong as death. It is as unyielding as the grave. To unleash sexual love is to turn on something that cannot be reversed. And so what are we to make of this? A Bible that seems, a God that seems so positive and pro-sex and yet wants us to take great care. How do we steer through this? Well, again, as we have done in previous weeks, we need to see the framework that God gives us for our sexuality and for that we turn to the very first pages of the Bible, page 4 in your church Bibles, Genesis chapter 1 and you start to see the framework, the nature and the purpose God has given sexuality. Here in the, the very first moments of our world as our world is created and we are created as humans, we're told that God has created us as sexual beings. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we are male and female. God has designed us with a sexual nature. It's not an accident, it's, it's very deliberate and for a purpose because it is in this nature, this male and female nature, this sexual complementarity that God has given us that his very purpose for us is fulfilled. Remember the purpose from a couple of weeks ago? Be fruitful and multiply. He has created us to achieve that purpose. And so humanity as male and female, as image-bearing creatures, reveal the very nature and purposes of God. And if you look all the way through the Bible, you'll remember, as we did a couple of weeks ago, that that nature and purpose is fundamentally about relationships, about intimacy. And so sexuality is not some side issue for us, it's right at the heart of things. And there's no clearer picture of that than in Genesis chapter 2 verses 23 and 24, page 5 of our Bibles. The moment when the man first meets the woman, at their wedding day, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And so for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There it is, God's wonderful template for us as sexual beings, the man and the woman, husband and wife, one flesh. Sex is uh, for God the bodily act that expresses our total other person-centred commitment, our love as a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband. It is about oneness. It is intensely spiritual, intensely emotional. It is the deep end of the ocean of relationships as far as God is concerned. Sex is a covenant act. It is a promise-making and keeping act. The sort of act from which there is no going back. It is as strong as death, as unyielding as the grave. That's his wonderful template for sexual, sexuality for humans. Which I guess again raises the question, why is our experience as a culture so different to this template? Why is our experience as a society with sex so marked with shame when there was to be no shame, Genesis 2 said? 
We only need to turn to the next chapter of the Bible again as we have been doing Genesis 3 to see our revolution. Uh, Really the sexual revolution is just the latest symptom of a revolution that has been going on since uh, the very beginning. Genesis 3 gives us the answer telling us that humanity has chosen to rebel, chosen to reject God's purposes especially when it comes to our sexuality. The template that God has given us, this wonderful picture of oneness of a husband and a wife is smashed at the very heart of this sexual brokenness, at the very heart of this rejection is idolatry. A decision to reject God as our God and to have things like sex as our God. Our revolution has come about because we have made a trade. We have exchanged our God. And for that, let me encourage you to turn to one of the readings that was read out for us, Romans chapter 1 page 1128 and you'll see this exchange and see what it has to do with our sexuality. Page 1128, Romans chapter 1. You see at the heart of our revolution as humans, our rejection of God is idolatry and you see in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1 where that begins. It begins in the mind. It begins with a willful decision of the heart. I choose to suppress the the truth about God and about his purposes for me. Even though verse 19 of Romans 1 tells me that God's purposes are plain, they're embedded in our very nature, male and female, that it's, it's obvious, says God. Even though he has made us able to understand those purposes, even though since Adam he has spoken those purposes to us, I choose to reject that knowledge. And so like some band of revolutionaries, we begin our revolution in our minds. But rather than lead to freedom, you see the results in verse 21? of Romans 1, futile thinking, dead-end thinking, a foolishness of heart and an ever-growing darkness. Do you feel that in our culture? When it comes to sexuality, it's hard to miss. And so humanity abandons God for idols and do you see what God does in response? He discloses his wrath against us. He opposes our rebellion and you see the way he does it? He gives us over to the very things we worship. He says, you want sexual freedom? Have it and see what happens. Have your Trojan horse. And so verse 24, he gives us over to sexual immorality. And secondly, a specific form of that in verses 26 and 27, he gives us over to homosexuality. God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Now, why is homosexuality singled out here? It's an aspect of our sexual immorality. Why this one in particular mentioned? Is it worse than any other forms of idolatry? Is it worse than any other form of sexual immorality? Well, no, it's not. But what it is, and this is why Romans 1 has it, is very clear evidence of just how distorted God's plans have become in a world infected by idolatry. How far we can twist things. And thirdly, verse 28, he gives us over to a depraved mind. And we're back in the mind again where this all began. Remember, that's where the revolution began, a rejection of knowledge of God and his ways. And what we see is our revolution is a literal one. It's a circle, a cycle. 
And not just a repeating cycle, it's a vicious cycle, a downward spiral. Each time we reject God's purposes in our minds and hearts, each time he responds by giving us over to that, saying, here is your victory prize, the result gets worse. And we've already seen this, as as I've already outlined, with the sexualisation of our society. But listen again to this quote by researcher Anne Higament. She says, The sexualisation of society is not a fringe phenomenon inflicted by perverts on a protesting society, but a fundamental change furthered by legitimate industries and millions of satisfied customers. Now, well might we shake our heads and say, tut, tut, how terrible that so many people consume this stuff. But if we do, we'd be fooling ourselves, for we are the consumers. Consider how sexualised your world is. Consider the iconic TV shows of recent times. I could mention virtually any, but take, for example, a show like Friends that was so popular for so long. A show that featured a tight group of friends and behind them almost, like a backdrop, were frequent changes of sexual partners. It was like changing a scene at a play. They'd sort of come and go and you'd hardly notice it was just normal. The same is true of a popular series like The West Wing. Virtually every relationship was a sexually immoral one. EastEnders, spooks, you name it. It's just normal. And consider the iconic movies of our time. A movie like Titanic, where the movie is shaped in such a way that you end up cheering on an adulterous affair because the other guy's an idiot anyway. Consider how often we do that with the media. We end up cheering on a promiscuous relationship, hoping it's consummated. Well, consider the advertising that so soaks our world. In this book that I've been reading this week, uh, Getting Real, Challenging the Sexualisation of Girls, there's a chapter in there detailing the the very nature of the the advertising industry. The the very thing that the sexual revolution was supposed to do to, to bring freedom and equality for women is the very thing it has done the opposite. Women are almost always the sex object in advertisements, rarely doing anything. Now there's an example there of an ad last year for Coca-Cola with a bikini-clad woman uh, with a bottle to her open mouth with the words above her, you know you want it. We are the consumers. In the end, casual, unconnected sex is all around us. It's normalised. Is it any wonder that nearly half the marriages of this country end in divorce and the vast majority cite some kind of unfaithfulness, more and more pornography being the reason? Is it any wonder that people now choose to cohabit rather than to marry, at least for a trial period? I mean, what if we get bored? What if we're sexually incompatible? Is it any wonder that pornography is now so normalised, even among Christian men, that we, that we rarely raise an eyebrow? Don't need to go to a prostitute anymore. Don't need to go to the strip club. You just need to click a button. And is it any wonder that sexual damage to our children is growing by the day? That it's no longer a matter of them simply being exposed to an adult world and adult ideas, but that adult ideas are now targeted straight at them. Sexualised products that are linked to the cultural norms we have of sexual attractiveness, products previously reserved for the adult market are now sold directly to primary school girls. Sexy bras and knickers, platform shoes, lip gloss, fake nails, miniskirts. No longer for the dress-up box, no such pretense anymore. Now they're sold to girls for this reason, quote, so they can look hot. Viva the revolution. 
Now, why is all of this such an issue for us? Well, again, before we get to our final passage, let me take us back to the key text we've had all the way through this series, Romans 13, and you'll see why. Remember the law that God has given us to live by, the law by which we understand what he expects of us in any situation? The law is to love our neighbour, the commitment to love the other, to do no harm. Well, clearly, if that is our rule for life, sexual immorality fails monumentally. Sexual immorality is anti-social, anti-other person. At its most simple, uh, you can't love your neighbour and sleep with his wife. It's not possible. You can't, in fact, love a woman who is not your wife, be it your girlfriend, be it your fiancé, no matter how committed, no matter how loving, and sleep with her. It's not possible without doing her harm. And beyond the harm that a couple engaged in sexual immorality are doing to one another, consider the damage that sexual immorality does to a family. Uh, the, The previous mayor of London, Ken Livingston, said this, I've got five kids by three women, but no one in this city cares what consenting adults do as long as it doesn't involve the children. He's got to be kidding, right? How deluded can you be? He said it in the sentence himself. The children are involved. Five children, three mums. Where do they land? Love does no harm to its neighbour. And then there is pornography. Beyond the obvious damage it does to a relationship of a husband and wife, it's time to shatter the myth of the other relationships it is damaging. When you view pornography, you are not looking at an imaginary person in a fantasy world. They are women being abused for your sexual pleasure. And by your persistence in this sin, you would have that abuse remain on her. You are party to that. You are involved. And you are doing great harm to her, your neighbour, abandoning her to sexual abuse, drug abuse and violence as about 90% of the women involved in that industry suffer. Sexual immorality is anti-other person. It is anti-self. We won't look it up now, but 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells you that. Sexual sin uh, is sin against your own body. It is destroying your very soul. And sexual immorality, the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, it is anti-God, the God who comes to dwell in you by his spirit, the God who says your body is therefore his temple, who bought you at a price. And so how widespread is this broken image when, it recom- when, when we think about sexual matters? When it comes to sexual brokenness, how, how widespread is that? Well, remember where it comes from. It comes from idolatry and so idolatry affects us all and so it is universal. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, you've heard it said don't commit adultery but I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We're all caught up in this. Who has not lusted? Who is without sexual sin? And therefore the definitive solution to our sexual brokenness is God's definitive solution to idolatry itself. It is the work of his son on his cross because Jesus' death is about shattering our idols. And so turn with me briefly to our final passage and you'll see this in 1 Corinthians 6, page 1147. 1 Corinthians 6. Here you see God's revolution. We've seen our revolution, both the one in Genesis 3 and its latest 
version in the sexual revolution. Here you see God's response, God's revolution. Let me read verses 9 to 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 and I'm going to read the ESV version. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 is one of the most amazing verses in, in Scripture. If, to, to read that you see some of the most wonderful descriptions of you as a Christian. The sort of descriptions that should have the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Amazing. They are descriptions that Paul uses by way of contrast to the Corinthians' current behaviour, saying, you've moved on from that. This is who you are now. Sexual immorality is mentioned here in the context where change is on the agenda, change brought about by the Lord Jesus, change brought about by his blood, change brought about by the cross. Spectacular change, verse 11. You see, when I come to Christ and his cross in faith, I surrender my life to him, all of it, including my sexuality, God declares me to be things that I could never be left to my own devices. Righteous, washed, pure, holy, set apart for him. There's nothing in my experience that tells me I can make myself those things, especially when it comes to sexual brokenness. Because anyone who's been trapped in it will know how addictive a sin it is. And yet there is Christ, who is all of these things that I could never be. And as I trust in him, as I give my life to him, so I share in all that he is. It's not possible in the New Testament to split apart what Christ has done for me on the cross to the change he brings about in who I am now when I'm joined to him. So when it comes to sexuality, every Christian has a clear choice. I can live by my own desires and experiences, shaped by the sexually broken world around me, the word of this world, or... By surrendering my life to the Lordship of Christ, I can live by his assessment of who I am. His perspective on my life as he now declares me to be in Jesus. Ultimately, is back to Romans 1, it is a question of who I believe, whose word, whose truth I believe, the truth of this world or God's truth in his son Jesus. And so as we finish, let me encourage you to join the revolution. Uh, but not the sexual revolution of the 60s, join God's revolution. In Romans 13, this passage that we've had week after week, in verse 11, it tells us that in these last days we must wake up. If you are a Christian, you need to wake up and realise that time is short, the house is flooding, it's not a time for sleep. And so let me encourage you to join the revolution when it comes to sexuality by being involved in the public square, being a strong and clear voice against the progress of the sexual revolution, knowing, as we do from Romans 1, the path is a downward one with much harm. And let me say that it might seem like you're shooting a little pea shooter gun into a, into a massive army and it's not going to make any difference. But it does. I was speaking to a friend, uh, Scott, in South Africa recently who's, uh, who uh, went past a shop in one of the uh, big shopping centres there, uh, a, sort of a youth shop selling T-shirts and things and uh, all these T-shirts up the front, the, the latest uh, fashion for the summer, all these T-shirts with sexual uh, uh, images and sexual wording on the front, things like I recycle girls. 
And so he wrote a letter and then another and another and another and another. And finally he received a letter just last week telling him they are removing them all from all their stores. Each victory is worth it. We are committed to love our neighbour. And the same goes for families. Don't be a passenger as your family moves along this path. Be wise, be active, be involved in the lives of your children. Be involved in their music, their computer use, their choice of clothing. Be prepared to be the spoil sport. This is not harmless fun. And as a church family, we need to be prepared to help each other with this. Sexual sin, sexual immorality is an addictive sin. It cannot be overcome just on our own, just with the decision, I need to stop this. We need to carry each other's burdens. We need to be prepared to do that in our small groups, in our our relationships, the people we are close to here. And if you don't have anyone like that, I would love to be that for you. Let me finish by saying, if you are a Christian, if you have been washed in the very blood of your Saviour, then change is a constant in your life. You are a work in progress. It's not enough to simply say of the struggle with sexual immorality, well, that's my weak area. God brings transformation. God doesn't leave us where he finds us. He is always calling us to put off our old self and to put on the new. Uh, Verse 14 of Romans 13 says to put on Christ. That's what he's calling you to. He is the change bringer. He changes minds so that they are not conformed to the pattern of this world but renewed in the pattern of God. Changing hearts so that we grow to love him more than any mere idol, even sex. Changing our behaviour that we may honour him sexually. That is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a God of second chances, of third and fourth and fifth. In fact, it's why Jesus came. When he forgives you, it is total, washed clean, remembering your sins no more. And so if you are struggling with sexual immorality, if you have fallen down in this area, come to God in repentance. Know he will forgive you. Know it has been dealt with. His grace is sufficient. But remember this as well. Here's a verse to fix in your head. Hebrews 10.26 Remember as well that his grace cannot be mocked. If you keep on in these practices that you are trampling over the very cross of Christ, there is no sacrifice left for one who mocks God's grace. And so if you are sleeping with someone who is not your spouse or you are tempted to, stop. If you are actively or tempted to be actively homosexual, stop. If you are watching pornography on the internet or in any other form, stop. And if you can't stop, and there will be many who feel that, get help. Be accountable to someone. This is serious stuff. You do not want to mock God's grace. Instead, you want to run into his arms and find forgiveness and restoration and hope. Let's pray together.